How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. feels a little different when something like that speaks over you than when you listen to the news during the week. Your spirit is different when you hear scripture read over you versus when you have a spin of today's news spoken to you. You see, depending on what time of day you are either going to be encouraged or greatly discouraged, made to be filled with delight and happiness, joy, or to be infuriated once again, all depending on what you listen to and what you see. Today, we're going to look into Luke chapter 2, and we're going to consider that why is it that the angels could say, the news they're about to give is good news? You can't possibly ever appreciate why their statement was so profound unless you lived it and you understood it as that indeed, at that time, just hearing that something could cause hope was Great news. Consider what the news is each day. I only received the Sunday paper, and so, you know, it comes on Sunday morning. It's going to have the news of yesterday. It used to be that newspapers gave you the news. Now it's just going to give you more context to the news you've already heard. I decided to give context to the, the, those who received the news that night the shepherds, to appreciate 
why they received what happened, other than the fact it was otherworldly to have a bunch of angels show up, but to have the message of what the angels bringing to be such good news to them that they were excited and hustled to go into the little village of Bethlehem to find out if it indeed was true. So to appreciate that, I want to give context to our lives, the news that you and I deal with every day. In our lifetime, now some of that can be difference between those in this room that are older than me and those younger. I'm, I'm classically middle-aged now, although I'm on the upper end of middle age. And so in my lifetime, I can say that I've watched the news be something that you can become aware about international news from obscure countries. I can find out about it the next day. As time usually would work its way through and then it would hit our news, you know, within hours, but often the next day. To watching it be that we got the news for the rest of the world on that day, when you watch the evening news through the 80s and 90s, you got the news of the entire world right there in the moment. But again, we would wait till 5 o'clock. 6 o'clock, 6.30, depending on what time zone you lived in. But now, you could be working in the middle part of your day. You could turn on your phone, and you can get the news of the moment from any part of the world at any time. So when somebody gives news, as I'm about to give you, it's caught in time very quickly. So what I'm about to say was as, was as of 2 p.m. Thursday afternoon. Today is the 13th. This would be December 10th, 2 p.m. And here was what the top news was at that moment that was affecting our lives, albeit for that moment. Because as I go through this, you're going to say, well, that was even old by 4 o'clock in the afternoon that day. So to also protect your heart, I am not going to give you the top news that would be at the top news story of every syndicate. At least I'll give you some of it, but I know that if I gave you the top 10 points of every news media uh, syndicate, you would be discouraged, angry, frustrated, shaking your head, and you'll stop listening to me right there and then because you'll be mindful of that for the rest of the sermon. So I've interspersed highlights of news that were in other categories that are often secondary, but still the top news pieces of that category. So here we go. Top news story at 2 p.m. was indeed that COVID-19 experienced another daily record for the fifth or sixth consecutive straight day. Also, top news that day, but in the entertainment realm, Taylor Swift dropped a surprise album on the market. Now, for some of you who are like, why'd she get rid of it? For others of you, you know that to drop something means you released it. It just happened. It caught you by surprise. So apparently Taylor Swift on Thursday announced a new album. Also in the news, tops, I will add, 
stimulus talks were dragging on and still are. NASCAR champ Jimmy Johnson launched the Charlie Meatball Productions. Come on, really? That was top news in car racing that day. Is that Jimmy Johnson, longtime NASCAR champ, started a new company called Charlie Meatball Productions. I haven't a clue what that's about. If it's about meatball or if it's about productions of some other kind. Vaccine distribution could be dragged down by competing values as everybody's already clamoring about how to order its distribution. Top in the news story of this part of the world, who's at fault for Carson Wentz being benched? The coach himself, the offensive coordinator, fellow players, the wide receiver, the offensive line. You decide, because I know it matters to many of you here in this room. There were also an interesting story that came out on Thursday that was getting read highly across our country. It was a story of people that had to escape the California wildfires. And they talked about two terrifying days where they weren't sure if they would be able to make it. In the golf realm, top news story of the day at 2 p.m. on Thursday, December 10th. The title of the article said, Why Your Ego May Be Hurting Your Golf Game. So I spent some time praying after that article. <laughs> also at 2 p.m., top news story for the state was Governor Wolf tested positive for COVID-19 and would be making an announcement later that day at 4 p.m. about further things, which we all now know. At 2 p.m. on Thursday, December 10th, obviously about 8 p.m. in the evening in England, apparently Queen Elizabeth made an accidental post on Twitter. <laughs> to which I'm thinking, the Queen tweets? <laughs> I'm sorry, that, just the thought of that is just amazing to me. Local news, top story, again, at that moment, 2 p.m. on Thursday, Lancaster County released another $7 million from the CARES Act of federal funds to local businesses. One piece of good news locally was a Lancaster County boy, age 10, continues to help feed hungry families in the area. I hope he brings the name of Jesus with that because I wish more Christians would do just that in the name of Christ. Meanwhile, Christians are posting in record form their anger, their disgust, their frustration. But are they offering anything hopeful and helpful that could truly change the tide of what everybody truly needs, which is Jesus? You see, the reality is, is that good news is rare. And it doesn't sell media numbers and viewers and so on and so the more negative you can go the more people watch because it infuriates but yet in the personal realm good news is longed for it's hungered for it's desired even to the point where people go searching for it 
But why is it that when we gather, we tend to bask not in the good news, we bask in the gripe sessions with others? Not because we seek answers from that group we're griping with, we just want to commiserate with other miserable people. Why is it we're prone to that? Because honestly, in those gripe sessions, do we really want somebody to offer a counter idea? Is a counter thought even received in such a session? Honestly, no. When we're griping and we're griping with other people and we're just giving our list of what's gone wrong in the last several months, we just want people to affirm our anger, our frustration, our points of view. So it's really just commiseration that offers no hope, no blessing, no encouragement, no reprieve of our internal anguish. But yet, when left to ourselves, and we're done griping with other people, and we begin to think, Ugh, I wish we would get good news. I wish there was hope. If we get to that place where we decide that not only do I want that so badly, I want to talk to somebody about it, who would be the likely one in your mind that you would pursue and, and call up on your phone to talk to, to get a hopeful discussion. My guess is it would not be anybody in your circle of griping. My guess, it wouldn't be those you commiserate with. It's likely it would come from somebody whose life exudes a different spirit than you have, that has a different conversation than what you offer. And then you find, if not for but a moment, satisfaction in engaging such a person, and you find it life-giving. But then, too often, we'll walk away from it, and we become our miserable selves once again. People are longing for good news right now. Do you agree? Is anybody else tired of the same news every day? I've cut it off. I make sure that I know enough to make sure that I'm not misstepping on something or understanding what others are dealing with, but otherwise it's not my diet. I find that my spirit to maintain it cannot be satisfied by engrossing myself in it. Good news is desired and longed for. And when somebody runs into it, where somebody whose attitude, their words, their life, their actions, their context of discussion becomes a warm blanket on a cold night, we want more. And the world in our world today, the gospel message about Jesus Christ, if shared from such a posture and position, would be received.
Now the context of the shepherds. They were in the same season of time, very similar season of time. News that was good news, rare. Much to complain about in regards to government, health, similar. Maybe even more dire. If we could appreciate the true context that these shepherds were about to receive this news, I think we would appreciate all the more the message of the angels. So let's begin by reading in verse 1, because Luke, who's already writing this years later, is reminding people the context by which, and, and again, in their lifetime, that they would remember. Remember when the census was taken, and what things were like at that time. And people would shake their heads, yes. So now, let's read it and appreciate that Luke is reminding people of something in their lifetime that they had experienced and to recall the context by which the message of the angels brought that became good news. Verse 1, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This is the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Let me stop there. Luke gives us context to this moment that's about that's happening just before the announcement to the shepherds. It's a season of time when a census had been taken and people were forced to go to their places where their patriarchs were from. Their different clans were from different parts of Israel. So they were called and forced to go there. This was happening during a particular context of Romans history that we don't even appreciate today. So let me help you understand how fresh this is at this moment. It was B.C. 63, 63 B.C., when the Roman general Pompey conquered Jerusalem, which then means that within 60 years of the birth of Christ, many people were alive at that time that recall the conquering of Jerusalem and, and therefore the, the countryside of Israel. So you have this recently conquered nation, Israel, that is now under the oppressive power of this place called Rome. But it was only 30 years before this moment that Rome became the empire as we know it. You see, Rome was simply a power at the time when Pompey destroyed Jerusalem and conquered it. It was not till Caesar Augustus in 30 B.C., that Roman, the Roman Empire became united as one massive empire. So in the lifetime of the vast majority of adults, 
They had watched Rome that had conquered them 60 years before that. Now is this massive empire that is controlling the known world. And Caesar Augustus is the leader of it and the first official emperor. It's under Caesar Augustus that they decided to create a census. And so the census is happening at a time when things were, quite frankly, in turmoil in Israel. They were already under another significant leader called Herod the Great. Herod was a client king, as one commentary put it, that was underneath the leadership of Rome, but he was to oversee the region of Judea and the Israelite territory. Herod was a pretty pompous, arrogant man, but he was, a, he was also pretty aggressive in constructing things, yes, to appease his own honor, but to appease also the people. He was fascinated by Jewish history. So what did Herod the Great do? He rebuilt Jerusalem. He also rebuilt the temple. He built the, the palace known as Herod's Palace. Many things around the nation of Israel were built during Herod the Great's time. But in order to accomplish that, he had to solicit the energies of the people, the Hebrew people. And as a result, many of them were involved with building. And yes, there was pride involved with that. But it came at the cost of many earning very little money, but producing great work. And they got taxed for it. So there was the Roman taxes that they were all being oppressed by. But then Herod needed to pay for his pet projects. And so the people were taxed by that as well. So could you imagine two massive powers taxing you when you're not even able to earn income to feed your own family? That was indeed the culture that they were a part of. This Herod was oppressive. If anything happened to threaten his authority, he would work to great end to eradicate it. We know that from later on in the story that when he hears about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem, he sent soldiers there to kill all the babies two years and younger so that he could make sure that he had no threat for his leadership. That's the kind of fear that they lived under. Oppressive Rome and oppressive Herod. The Jewish people were growing weary under this oppressive leadership. The Roman Herodic uh, taxation, the dwindling of their identity as, as they're now 60 years and beyond of, of having been a conquered nation. And then the distortion of their faith that was beginning to happen as Hellenism was beginning to infiltrate the way people believed about God. And then the Roman idea of polytheism, many gods, was also beginning to infiltrate the Jewish people's ways of looking at God. So their identity as a nation is gone and deteriorating as the memories of the next generation do not have the memory of them being their own nation. And then their faith is being distorted. It's not what it used to be. And all the while, they were told this Messiah is supposed to come and he will deliver you from this oppression. But it had been centuries since anybody had spoken of his coming. They were depressed. They were fearful. They were oppressed. And they were giving up. On top of all of that, if things couldn't get worse, 
Caesar Augustus decided, we're going to do a census. Now, contrary to our experience of doing a census, which they just did this year in the United States, every 10 years, we do a census. Why? To make sure that we are accurately representing where the population is in our country. As population gatherings shift, so also the representation in Congress reflects that. So these censuses are very important in our country. But in Rome, the reason why they do census is because they want to more accurately and more adequately tax you and to make sure no one is escaping it, which means that a new tax is coming. You'll see that mentioned in the the King James Version as it refers to a taxation. Other translations realize it's not in the text, but it is known from uh, from other historical texts that when Rome did a census, it was bringing a new tax. So imagine, you're a Jewish person. You're feeling oppressed. You're feeling depressed. You're feeling like the identity of your nation is deteriorating and the next generation doesn't even know they've been a great nation. Their faith is being distorted by all kinds of polytheism. And now they've been talking about this Messiah who seemingly is not ever going to come. They receive word. Rome's going to do a census. That means another tax is coming. How are we going to make ends meet? How are we going to be able to feed our families? So this was not an exciting journey to go from Nazareth down to Bethlehem because it was under the context of further oppression. Not to mention that it was dangerous to do, let alone doing so with a woman who is pregnant. Let's pick it up in verse 8. I think we can appreciate the atmosphere and the context as to why they're longing for anything that would give hope. Verse 8, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those whom his favor rests. Silence is broken, but it's not broken where anybody could have predicted. The announcement goes to the shepherds. The shepherds in fields nearby Bethlehem that were probably some of the most disregarded people of their time. God chooses them to receive the entrance message. And he says, this will be good news for all people. Not just the Jewish people. Not just those in the countryside around. But for all people. And you will know which child this is. Because I'm going to give you some signs to look for. 
the way he will be wrapped, the type of clothing, the location. And in that location, the cradle, which is actually a feeding trough for cattle, a manger. Unmistakable that when they show up in Bethlehem, which child they would be looking for. But then the angel says that this child's birth and coming is going to bring glory, but it's not glory to just anyone. The glory of this child's coming is going to Yahweh, God himself, the great I am, the creator God, the one who had led the people of Israel and gave the promises to, yes, Adam, to Moses, to Abraham, David, and to many prophets and through many prophets. Yahweh is going to get glory by this child's birth. And on top of that, peace will come to those from whom God's favor rests. These will be the series topics through the month of December. On December 27th, we'll talk about the peace. And what does it mean to experience the favor of God? On December 24th, we will talk about the signs and the importance of signs so that we understand and know for sure who the Messiah is. And then next Sunday, we'll look at the glory that goes to God because of all that is being accomplished in the Messiah's life. But today, we look at why is the birth of this child good news? If we don't understand the context of what's going on, then we do not understand why it's good news. So let's turn in our Bibles now to Romans chapter 10. So you can turn to the right in your Bibles or you go to your Bible app to Romans chapter 10. And we're going to understand what this good news is all about. It's not just any news, it's good news, and there's reason why it is good news. And we're going to begin by reading in verse 9. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call upon him. That's why it said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then some rhetorical questions are shared here by Paul when he says, okay, if everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them or telling them? And how can anyone tell them or preach to them unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I think in order to understand 
how it is someone's feet can become beautiful by bringing good news. And to be able to understand why good news is good news, we have to understand what is it that causes the need for someone to be saved. Now, for those of us who have grown up in the church, this will be familiar to us. We understand that we were all born in sin. We talked about sin two weeks ago and that we're all born inherently with sin and that by that sin, we are separated from God. All of that happened when Adam and Eve chose to defy the orders of God. They went from being perfect, without error, without sin, and being able to look to a life and life eternal without ever having to face death. When they chose, when they chose to sin, in the end of the day, it caused sin for us all. And as a result, because God is holy and just, he separated himself from us because in his holiness, his holiness would destroy us if we came into his presence, which is why he had to separate from us. But then God had a decision to make. He had to decide, is he going to eradicate and destroy this mankind that has now become flawed? Or does he save it? Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 tells us what God's decision was. He says, I'm going to save it. For now, the sins are going to create incredible burdens and labor for you. Death will become your experience. But there will be a day when the offspring of a woman will come and he will crush the head of the serpent, Satan himself. That's the first messianic prophecy in Scripture. And then the rest of the Old Testament shares multiple explanations and prophecies to prepare us for this coming child, this coming Messiah, who is going to become the bridge between man and God. Hence, why man was longing for it. Those who knew the text knew that God said, I love you and I'm going to provide a way. But until then... In order to be made right before me, you must sacrifice animals, pure ones, for the temporal coverage of your sins. And that people by faith had to trust that these temporal sacrifices would be sufficient. But they knew that there were many of these sacrifices that were not pleasing to God. So death was something to be feared. Hence today, if somebody doesn't know the good news that we're speaking of today, death is something to be feared. So as time goes on, the meaning and understanding of us being sinners and the fact that because we're sinners, we can look forward to eternal death, where when we die because of our sin, we have earned death and permanent separation from God. And we're sent to a place that God had designed not for us, but for Satan and his demons. But because of our sin, we then now are given the same penalty as demon and his angels, as Satan and his angels. This was the news for all those who cared to learn. That's why death was not something to be desired. 
For years and centuries, people studied this, trying to understand how will the Messiah create a difference for how we are currently under the penalty of death? How will that change? So they longed for the Messiah's explanation. Now he comes into the context where life was probably at its lowest for the Jewish people and for most of the world, unless you were Roman. But even then, they lived in fear of their Caesar, and not all was well. People longed for good news. We get the understanding that we are indeed flawed creatures. None of us are perfect. So if there is a God, and we meet him after we die, how do we know that what we've done on earth is enough to satisfy whatever anger he might have towards us? And the reality is, there's nothing you or I can do to satisfy him. But God loved us enough that he sent his one and only son to die on a cross, to be the ultimate lamb, to be the perfect sacrifice that is no longer temporal but permanent. And then rose from the dead to give life so that we can have hope for life eternal. Not eternal death, but eternal life. That's the message he brings that is good news. Which is why in the text they found here in Romans that it says that anyone who believes in him, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, they will be saved. But in particular, it says, those who believe that he is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, it's those that will be saved. But this is about a greater story, isn't it? You see, the demons believe that Jesus is Lord. The demons believe that he was raised from the dead. They watched it happen. So why are the demons not with God? There is a significant difference between the belief of a demon and the belief of someone that experiences being saved. And it's called not only acknowledging that Jesus is Lord, but committing to him as being Lord of your life. This text breaks down what it means to find salvation and to be saved from the sins that, that condemn us before God. It says that this salvation, it says in verse 11, is for anyone who believes. In verse 13, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And in verse 12, for Jew and Gentile, he is Lord and Lord of all. So anyone and everyone can experience the salvation, this good news that Jesus provides if they believe and they commit. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave or free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Christ died for all. But not all will be saved. The message of the angels were, upon all those who experience the favor of God, they will experience peace. 
The one who comes into salvation, acknowledging the work of Jesus and calling him Lord and acknowledging that he was raised from the dead, therefore realizing that both the mouth and the heart reveal the true salvation of a human being. Anyone, everyone can experience the lordship of Christ. But here's the problem. This good news is not known by everyone. People may know that they are not perfect, but they don't know that there is a God that is waiting to meet them after their death that they've got to give an account to. They don't know that they have already received a death penalty due to their sins. They don't know that the same judge that threw the gavel down and declared us guilty has also paid the price for that judgment. We merely have to receive the gift. But how can you receive it unless you know it? That's why verse 14 says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear unless someone is preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? So in other words, you cannot call on the Lord unless you believe, but you cannot believe unless you know about it. Period. You have to know. That's why we are committed to making sure that people throughout the world, whether they live in America or on remote islands that have never heard the name of Jesus, that we want to make sure that we get the name of Jesus to them because their lives depend on it. We invest hundreds of thousands of dollars as a church to that end, to make sure that the name of Jesus gets to everyone. Because we know and believe that unless they hear, they have no opportunity to believe in a way that would save them. So therefore, you cannot believe unless you know about it. And you cannot know about it unless someone tells you. So someone must tell the good news for the good news to be received, which means those who know must go. My guess is that everyone here in this room, at some point in their life, has known this truth. But how many that you know that's in your relational world, in what the Bible calls your oikos, that sphere of influence, those who know you, how many of those in your circle don't know what you know? And then the question is, why have you withheld? Do you not love those that know you and that you know? Do you not love the Lord that you know and receive what he has given you with good, as good news? Why would we ever withhold that from somebody we know and love? So if we know, we must go. Then it says in verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You see, when we finally get courageous enough and loving enough to share with those that know us and that we know, our feet get seen as beautiful by God. And for the receiver, the one who hears the good news and receives it, 
will then be forever grateful that you love them enough to share the best news they could ever receive. If you know it, you must go. People's lives depend on it. Somewhere along the line, somebody was faithful to share with you. And it was good news. So people need to know that they're in need of being saved. You see, experiencing the good news is for all those who call upon Jesus. And the only way to call upon Jesus and to ask for him is to know that you need him. Which means that you must admit you're guilty. You're a sinner. And that that sin has condemned you. You must believe that Jesus is the only means by where life can be found now and, etern- and into eternity. You must believe that he is Lord and you must believe that he was risen from the dead, that he gives us life and life eternal. And for that belief to be a saving belief, it's not just believing it's true. It's committing yourself then to him as Lord and saying, Lord, become the Lord of my life. Lead me and let me align myself to you. We must commit to his lordship. That's the true ABCs, as we call it, of coming into relationship with Jesus. To admit you're a sinner. To believe that he is Lord and the resurrected Lord. And to commit your life to him. Let's pray. God, I have been praying for this sermon all week because I know there are people here, not only in the room, but also at home that don't know you as Lord and Savior. They know about you, but they don't know you. They're in need of good news. And I'm so thankful to be able to declare that even though they are judged and are under the penalty of death, that the same one whose gavel declared that is also the same one who went to great ends to save us and to pay the price. This is great news. Thank you, Jesus, for coming so that we could have hope and not fear death. And I pray that you'll work in the hearts of those who have never known you to receive this and confess their need for you and to commit to you as Lord. And Lord, for those of us who have known you and known this message and received it, help us to not withhold, but to be courageous and loving enough to share. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing this song, it's an opportunity to consider and contemplate the good news that we've received for those of us who are in Christ. Or to consider the good news to be received for yourself. You may, may remain seated and ponder the words of the song as you consider.
Would you stand, please? But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. This is good news, and people more than ever are starving for it. If you are here in this room and you came not knowing Jesus but would like to leave here knowing Jesus as Lord, we would love to make that possible for you and pray with you. We have people that will be in the encounter room, which is to my left, your right. We'd be glad to pray with you and talk with you. But you can do so in this very moment. Admit your need for a Savior. Believe that he is Lord, the resurrected Lord, and commit yourself to his leadership and you will be saved. Male, female, Jew, Gentile, young, old, slave, or free. All those who do that will experience life now and for eternity. I am thankful I do not have to fear death. I'm thankful that I can walk these days, even though I don't get all that's happening each and every day based on the news I see, I'm confident in the one who knows tomorrow and the days beyond that because he's the sovereign Lord to whom my life is surrendered and therefore I have great peace. For the one that's being baptized today, you're going to hear a story of how peace came over him and therefore revealed that God is God and that Jesus is the one to call upon and that Jesus died for him and he was worth saving. So we invite you to participate by going to that baptism. He'll be in about 10 minutes over by the baptistry. But for all those who are hearing online and here in this room, know that God is not a killjoy. He is the one that wants to interrupt the narrative of life. Because the narrative the world wants to hear right now is commiseration. And that doesn't offer any hope. He wants to bring joy and peace. Those are the messages of Advent. God bless, and may you experience that peace this week. You're dismissed.